Engaging Leader, episode 129, Stand Out, How to Be a Thought Leader, featuring Dory Clark. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Many people in the business world believe that working hard will be enough to move their career forward. But whether you're trying to advance inside a large organization or you're an entrepreneur hoping to make a difference in your community or the global economy, you need to become recognized as an authority in your field. Making that happen is not a matter of self-promotion, but rather being generous with your unique perspective and knowledge in a way that inspires others to listen and even take action. As a result, you'll have a bigger opportunity to change the world for the better, while also giving you the ultimate job insurance. But for a lot of us, becoming a thought leader seems like a mysterious process. So today we'll talk with author Dory Clark about a framework on how to come up with a distinctive idea and build a following around it. Dory is the author of Reinventing You, as well as her newest book, Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and build a following around it. I love this book, and it happened to be selected as the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine columnist Jeffrey James. Dory teaches at Duke University. She's a consultant and speaker for clients such as Google, Morgan Stanley, and the World Bank, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to her today. Dory Clark, welcome to Engaging Leader. Hey, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me. Dory, does being a thought leader mean you have to be the top expert in the world on a given topic? Well, it, it could in the sense that somehow, uh, you know, the, w- the way that people use it, they sometimes are talking about the top experts in the world. But one of the things that I really try to emphasize in my book, Stand Out, is that aspiring to thought leadership doesn't mean that there's only one slot and that there's 7 billion people competing for it. You can be a thought leader in your company. You can be a thought leader in your community. You can be a thought leader in your field. And that can be construed a lot more broadly than just, oh, you know, who is the Elon Musk or the Malcolm Gladwell or the Tom Peters or folks who are, uh, you know, commonly known. Thought leadership basically means that you are someone who is known and respected for your ideas and is able to reap the benefits of that. And I think that that is something that can really benefit a wide swath of professionals. If you are known in your community as a thought leader in uh, intellectual property law, well, that means that a lot more customers and clients are going to be coming to you and seeking you out. If you're known as a thought leader in web design, you're going to have clients coming to you instead of constantly having to be knocking on people's doors and begging. And that changed the dynamics and it makes uh, it makes for a much better and more satisfying stream of income. So you need to define your particular niche and uh, maybe even for starters, just the context in which you, you think you can become known, a known authority in, in that field. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of a question early on of saying, who are the people that I admire the most? What is the what is the universe that I want to be part of? And how can I contribute to that conversation? If you start to get clear on that, then the steps that you need to take begin to present themselves. 
So if you had to pick the number one most important key to standing out from the crowd, what would you point to? I think that that one of the things that is most important is sharing your ideas through especially through content creation. And what I mean by that is that particularly uh, with the experience of of most uh, white collar professionals today, you're doing so much work in your head, right? That that it's very, very hard for anyone who is not literally your coworker who is observing you over your shoulder to know if you're any good or if you're doing a good job. How do I know that you're a good marketer? How do I know that that you're a good uh, programmer? How do I know that um, that you're a, a good accountant? It's really hard unless you have literally trained in the same discipline to be able to evaluate that. But a way that you can show the broader public who you are, what your personality is like, what your approach is like, how you think about the issues, and consequently essentially giving them a taste of what it would be like to work with you, is if you are willing to share your ideas and talk about them and create content. And it's easier than ever. You can write blog posts on LinkedIn or Medium. You can give speeches at uh, conferences or professional associations. Um, You can be active on social media and be retweeting interesting articles about your field. All those things provide a window into who you are, and it makes it, it essentially de-risks the, tran- uh, the transaction. It makes it easier for people to say, oh, well, you know, I've gotten to know Jesse through his blog post or through social media, and so I feel better about signing on the dotted line with him. Is it okay to, to be talking about all sorts of topics in your entire field, or is it important to sort of narrow down to some distinctive idea that is going to be your niche? Well, I think that different people take different approaches, so there's there's not one right way of doing it, but the abiding principle that I talk about in Standout is that you want to make sure that you're not confusing your readers or confusing the public. And so basically what I mean by that is if you are talking about workplace communication 50% of the time, and then you're talking about Dalmatians 50% of the time, (laughs) people are going to say, wait a minute, I I was tuning into this because I wanted to to learn how to communicate better at work. And now he's talking to me about dog training. Like, like, what is it? And so it's it's just the kind of thing that's going to leave them scratching their heads. And unless they equally love both of those things, which is probably not going to be a huge percentage of of the audience, eventually they're going to get fed up and leave and tune out. But on the other hand, if you're talking about workplace communication 80 or 90% of the time, and occasionally you'll throw in a picture of you with your dog, well, that's that's cool. It's like, oh, I'm getting to know Jesse better. That's, that's mm. great. Um, it's not enough to throw people off. So I think if you can strike a balance like that, um, it, it makes more sense for people. In the book, you talk about coming up with a distinctive idea and building a following around that idea. And you interviewed all sorts of very impressive people and identified five ways that they came up with a distinctive idea that sort of sets them apart. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what I what I did in Standout, as you're alluding to, is I interviewed about 50 top uh, experts in their fields. And it was a pretty wide range and everything from uh, business and psychology and technology to uh, real estate and genomics. And uh, I, I wanted to try to understand what made those people successful, what made them break through. And what I came up with in reverse engineering it was that there were five principal strategies that people use to get noticed. And very briefly, 
they were uh, number one, um, having a niche strategy where they focused on initially a very narrow slice of their field and got recognized as an expert in that and then kind of expanded out from there. Uh, number two was, uh, was having uh, what I call doing original research. And basically what that looks like, it, it doesn't have to be scientific research, but it, it means gathering data, contributing really interesting information. Maybe you do a lot of reviews. Maybe you did a survey. Maybe you wrote a white paper or really extensive case studies, but you're somehow contributing to the knowledge of your field that can benefit everyone. That's another really good way to get recognized as an expert. Um, a third way that people are able to stand out is by uh, embracing uh, a big idea, embracing uh, a, an idea or a cause that is uh, something that matters to people. So I was mentioning Elon Musk a minute ago. Um, when you ask top business leaders, who do you most admire? He's these days, you know, post Steve Jobs, he's usually at the top of people's lists. And part of the reason is that he has such a singular and bold vision of what he wants to do. You know, hey, let's, let's go to Mars. That seems a lot more exciting and compelling than picking, picking somebody who created a startup that delivers your laundry to you. And so having a bold vision and really talking about it and getting others on board with it is something that can really get you known and recognized and encourage people to want to be part of your team. That's a really big deal. Another, yet another strategy is um, creating a framework. And uh, creating a framework is basically taking a step back from your field and sort of looking at it from a 30,000 foot perspective and saying, are there common principles involved in the field and being able to articulate them for other folks? Um, and, and this might sound complicated, but you know, one example, which I think is a great one, is that from the beginning of time, people have been interested in influence and persuasion. But Robert Cialdini, who's somebody that I interviewed in Standout, it wasn't until about 30 years ago that someone actually looked at it and says, you know what? There's only six ways that you can persuade people. Here's what they are. And people said, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> and no one had thought of it that way. But just taking that extra step back, looking at the panorama and saying, wait a minute, that's a really big deal. And then finally, the fifth one is combining disciplines. If you just focus narrowly within one discipline, it, it's kind of hard to have a breakthrough because everybody's swimming in the same water. But if you take multiple fields and kind of mash them together, um, for instance, someone I profile in Standout was a mathematician and computer scientist who switched over into biology and was able to bring those insights to bear. You can often see things that other people can't, and it enables you to have faster breakthroughs. So share with us how this applied for you personally, let's say. I mean, you've become known as the thought leader on how to be a thought leader. Um, did you wake up one day and decide I'm gonna I'm gonna be the expert in this field? How did you c come to decide that this was gonna be your thing? Well, you know, I was I was interested in in it from a personal perspective because probably like uh, like a lot of your listeners, I was wanting to to figure out how to stand out myself. I mean, for the past decade, I've had my own business doing marketing strategy consulting, and it doesn't take long uh, to realize that there are a lot of people in the world that are marketing consultants. You, all you have to do is you know go to a chamber of commerce meeting or, or look online, and you see fifty million of them. And so the question is, well, how do you 
you get noticed? How do you um, make sure that when people are thinking of who to hire or who they want to uh, associate with, that you're the name at the top of the list and not everybody else? And so I, I just I wanted to crack that code. And so I decided that I would interview all these people and really try to learn from the best and in the process, try to capture that knowledge and share it with other people. So that was my motivation for Stand Out. And in terms of uh, walking the talk, what I essentially tried to do is that one of those strategies that I just mentioned, creating a framework, is uh, basically what I tried to do with Stand Out. Um, it is, uh, you know, a framework where I'm, I'm laying out, hey, here are five ways that you can stand out, and uh, and so I'm I'm trying to create uh, that sort of a structure around the concept of thought leadership. Now, in the book, you provide all sorts of great stories and and really powerful questions to help people get a sense for what would be an effective niche for them or what would be the uh, the sort of distinctive idea that they could really become known for in their field. Can you give us uh, one or two tips on how to determine that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, the idea that, that you're going to be known for and how to how to stand out, um, I would say that, uh, you know, one, one thing I'll just sort of jump to, uh, to something that I talk about in the latter part of the book is fundamentally becoming a recognized expert has two pieces, right? The first piece is coming up with the idea. The second piece is building a following around that idea and getting publicly recognized for it. And so what I describe in Stand Out is that when it comes to building that following and getting recognized, recognized because you know there, there's nothing sadder in the world than somebody who has an amazing idea and just no one cares and no one listens i don't want people to be in that situation i want the good ideas to come to light so how do you build a following fundamentally it's a three step process the first one and this is something that almost all the the experts that I profiled um, did. Uh, the first one is what I call building a network, and that is getting a group of trusted advisors around you. Um, these are, you know, you can call it your kitchen cabinet, but, but you know, your your personal board of directors. But basically, it's a group of people that you trust who can give you feedback about the quality of your ideas and which ones are good and which ones maybe you should kind of leave aside. <laughs> and they give you the advice and the support that you need to kind of move to the next level. The second phase is building your audience, which is where you start communicating your idea more broadly to people that don't already know you. Um, the internet and social media is a great way to start doing this. Uh, it's basically kind of putting it out there so that like-minded people can find you and discover the idea and it can begin to grow and snowball. And then finally, it's what I call building your community. And that becomes important because an idea it can grow to a certain extent if you are working really hard and evangelizing and talking about it all the time. But the truth is it can never really reach scale if you are the only one talking about it. That just doesn't work in a, in a country of 300 million people and in a, in a world of 7 billion people. One person talking ain't going to cut it. You need to have other people who are talking about it and who can help uh, be your ambassadors and spread the idea. And so once you begin to get a critical mass in your audience of people who have heard your idea and like it, you want to start bringing them together, whether it's in person, at conferences or meetups or online in Facebook. Facebook groups or listservs or things like that so that they can start talking to each other and spread the word and you can build a community around the idea. That's part of how you can really get your ideas going and gain traction for them. It's interesting that you start with that that first step of the developing this close inner circle branch because I think mo that's, that's a, that was a surprise to me. And I, I've been involved in 
some a few groups that could have been a, a, a close inner circle branch and served some of that need a little bit, but it wasn't really um, intentionally designed that way. Uh, and I think we just skipped that step a lot. That would help us both in identifying a truly distinctive idea, but also testing a lot of the messaging around that. Yeah, I think I think that's such a great point, Jesse, because you're right. People sometimes ask me, like, what's what's the most common mistake that people make when it comes to uh, becoming a recognized expert or spreading their ideas? And that's it exactly, is that I, I think, you know, in general, this is a good thing, but th- there is sort of this ethos that has seeped out into the popular culture of just get your ideas out there, see what mm-hmm. sticks, just put it out there, get a minimum viable product out there and and see what happens. And my, you know, my, my response is yes and. Yes, it's important to get a minimum viable product out and see what the public thinks and you don't want to be investing millions of hours to make it perfect before you decide that people even want it, of course. But prior – like it should not immediately go from your head to the public. That is too fast. It should <laughs> – because a lot of those things are, are just going to be bad in general. But tragically – in some cases, the idea is going to be, let's say, 75% there or even 85% there. And if you immediately take it from your head and put it out to the public, and the pu- what if the public says no? You may get a false negative, even though the idea is mostly good, because if you had just shared it with people who knew a little bit more about the audience or a little bit more about the, the field or whatever, they might have been able to make a couple of tweaks to get your idea from 85% to 95% and you put it out to the public and then they say, oh my God, I love this. And so I think that yes, it's a good weeding mechanism, but I also think that some ideas can be thrown away too soon if you prematurely present them to the broader public. And when the public says thumbs down, you say, oh, well, too bad, that idea sucked. Um, it might not have. And so just getting getting a pulse from people that you trust is a really important step. In the book, you one example you give of this sort of inner circle is a budding public speaker. And she proactively put together what you might call a mastermind group of people at similar levels or maybe slightly a, a ahead of her in the field. And they started meeting once a month or so. Um, is that sort of the, the, the model for creating an inner circle? So I think that that very much can be one model. Um, you know, I, I have a, a few a few thoughts on it. I mean, first of all, I think that I wouldn't want people to rush into creating a formalized mastermind group because the dynamics of the group are really important. And so, if you uh, prematurely say, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna create this group. Do you want to be part of my group?" That could be good, but if you choose. A wrong, even one wrong person, it can really upset group dynamics. I mean, let's say you have somebody that just proves to be too aggressive. And, you know, for everybody's idea, they say, oh, that's a terrible idea. Are you stupid? And, you know, all of a sudden, nobody's going to want to share anything if that's part of the, the dynamic. So I think that it's important to work up to a more formalized structure by doing really basic things like creating a tentative list of group members and then spending a little bit more time one-on-one with them so you get to know them and their personality. And then without floating anything, um, start bringing the group together to see what the group dynamics are like. Maybe it's just like, hey, I'm having a dinner party. Why don't you all come over or something like that and see what the interactions 
are and if the group seems to gel. You do that a little bit and then you can take the step of, of formalizing. So I think that's important. Um, the other thing too is that you may not um, you may not be in a position necessarily to have uh, a formal group. There's other lots of other ways to do it. I mean, right now, for instance, I'm part of a couple of online communities that I think are really valuable. Um, you know, one is a, a sort of paid uh, mastermind community. Another one is just like a free listserv. But they, they essentially serve the same purpose of bringing together a group of people where you can just, you know, at whatever point, raise your hand and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, create a, an online course. What platforms have you used? Which ones are the best? Or, you know, maybe you have a question about, hey, I have these um, extra books from my publisher. What do you think I should do with them? And, uh, you know, how can I best, who should I be giving them to or whatever? And people will come up with suggestions. And that's enormously valuable. So it doesn't have to be a regular meeting, um, but just having an outlet so that you have people to ask questions to in your life can be really quite valuable. Hmm. Now, the next step is building your audience. And in the book, you talk a lot about uh, options, such as blogging sort of being an obvious first step for a lot of people in this day and age, as well as uh, podcasting. And uh, and then sort of micro, uh, obviously building up to maybe writing a book, but then a lot of sort of micro things that if you're going to go to the, the effort of doing a killer blog post, then there's all sorts of other steps you should probably do to help that those ideas be spread. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little more? Yeah. So, so building your audience is uh, is you know pr- probably the most critical step. I mean, you uh, you need to do the other pieces in order to tee it up properly, but ultimately. No idea, no matter how good, is going to be successful if you just keep it within a tiny, tiny little group of people. It has to spread a little bit more uh, in order to be able to breathe, in order to be able to, to be discovered and to uh, to catch fire. And so sharing it more broadly, building the audience is essential to that. Um, I think there's a few different ways that you can think about this. One is about, um, as the idea creator, what is most comfortable for you um, in terms of how you communicate. Some people love to write. And so maybe for them, you know, blogging is the way to do it. You know, play to your strengths. You don't have to torture yourself coming up with different ways that you think you should spread ideas. Um, but, you know, maybe you prefer uh, audio. You know, maybe maybe it's through having a podcast or something like that. There's, you know, plenty of uh, video options now. I mean, the price for audio video stuff has just come down hugely. So basically anybody can do it. Um, even, even something as simple as I was alluding to earlier as a well-curated Twitter feed can be very powerful. You don't even have to come up with a lot of the ideas yourself in order to show that you are an expert at something. Curation is also a very valuable um, sort of service that you can provide. I mean, even, uh, you know, something like a lot of people have, have kind of gotten their start uh, doing uh, like weekly news roundups. You know, hey, this is the, the best articles about design thinking from the past week. And you put it together. And if you create something like that that people are interested in and they trust your judgment, um, you can get thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of people subscribing to it. And they say, wow, you know, I really, I really love this thing that Dory does. Um, those are all ways you can establish your expertise. Hmm. Now, I guess I, I still struggle sometimes with picking the right topic. If you are you going to tweet on everything having to do with, uh, let's say, workforce communications, a very broad topic, or 
do you pick something really narrow? For example, we've uh, focused a lot the last several months on mobile engagement for workforce communications with most uh, use, uh, most uh, media consumption on the internet now happening on mobile devices. Uh, over the past year, more than 50% is now on mobile devices. Um, at what point do you are you so narrow that you sort of uh, either bore your audience or maybe bore yourself? Yeah. So I think what's what's actually really critical here is uh, is boring yourself. That's the <laughs> that's the first thing, right? So I would say one as as you heard, one of the strategies that I articulated in terms of how to become a, a recognized expert is a niche strategy. For some people, that's going to come naturally, right? Some people just dispositionally have a, a real desire to focus in very narrowly on something. Oh, they love this thing. They want to study that thing. If you do, you know, by all means, go with it. Do, do that one thing. That's fantastic. If you don't, if you are somebody who prefers a broader range of subjects, if you are more of a renaissance person, you don't have to force it. Um, as I was saying earlier, you don't want to talk about things that are so disparate that it's like freaky for the audience. But, um, I mean, workforce communication, on one hand, yeah, that's a big topic. On the other hand, it's not that big of a topic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty cohesive. It's a facet of communications. It's maybe a facet of, of marketing or, you know, customer, you know, customer engagement or employee engagement. You know, I, I think that it's, it's narrow enough that, um, that if, if you think that, that that, broadly speaking, could hold your interest for a period of, of you know a reasonably long time, then focus there and don't worry about it too much. There's a lot of different ways that you can uh, that you can stand out. The niche strategy does not have to be it. Um, you could decide, you know what, I'm going to be the original research guy, and I'm going to you know do a, a widespread study about trends in you know mobile communication in the workforce, and that's a way that you could make your name. And you might get you might accidentally get known for that facet, but you don't necessarily have to choose to limit yourself to that facet. Now, how about some strategies for getting the word out when you've created something like a book or, or a, a blog post that you've invested a lot of time in that doesn't sap all of your time and energy? I mean, you can spend so much time creating, whether it's uh, tweets or Facebook posts or uh, a video about a short video uh, to, to promote some blog post you write. Um, it, how do you get, uh, avoid getting burnt out on that work just to, to, to market the work that you've already created? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a few different answers to that. I mean, the first one is to a certain extent, and I wouldn't, wouldn't worry about it that much in the sense that depending on what your business model is, I mean, especially if you are uh, a consultant or a professional service provider that deals with high, high-priced high engagements, um, it doesn't kind of matter in some ways how many readers you have as long as they are the right readers. And so you might spend you know 10 hours writing one blog post, but if you have a mailing list even of, let's say, 100 people that are 
prospective customers or current customers and you send them this article and it's really relevant to them and it encourages somebody to um, – you know, who you're working with to say, oh, actually, I'd like to expand our contract because I think we really need this thing. That blog post could bring you 30 grand. And, you know, great. That's a lot more than you'd get paid if uh, if you were, you know, submitting it to some, uh, to some news outlet. Uh, so, that could be really powerful in and of itself. So it's, it's sort of thinking about it. I mean, yes, it'd be great if everything you wrote had 100,000 people reading it, but it's not that necessary. Um, that's number one. Number two is when it comes to building your scale of your readers and subscribers and things like that, um, it's always, I think, a good idea early on, if you've really created high-quality, interesting content, to try to borrow somebody else's audience first. Uh, because you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have your own. So I would think about guest posting as a viable strategy. And in particular, if you can create something from the outset that is tailored and targeted to a particular, um, you know, highly trafficked blog or, or news site that, it, you know, accepts outside publications and you think would be a good fit, that's a great idea because you it gives you access to a lot of eyeballs. And if you've done it right, it will be something that they're very interested in. And then they'll say, oh, Jesse, how cool. I'll click, I'll click to subscribe to his newsletter. And then you can begin to build your following that way. Let's focus a little bit on the person who's not an entrepreneur or a consultant uh, out in the in the business world, but is actually in a role within a larger organization, and uh, it's still important for them to become a thought leader in order to manage their career, and sort of have that job insurance as well as just be uh, noticed and get promotions. Where would you encourage them to put their focus? So I think you know you're you're absolutely right. First of all, I mean, developing a reputation as an expert um, matters for obvious reasons to entrepreneurs because that's how you attract business. But I think in some ways it matters even more to people inside companies because the truth is the vast majority of people inside companies are not aware that this is important. And so if you are one of the few that actually is aware and you take some action on it, you can have disproportionate benefits from it because you're competing in a field where no one else is making the effort. So it's it's that much easier to uh, to stand out and get recognized. So what are some of the things that um, that I would recommend there? I mean, I think that um, something that is really professionally useful, you know, as we think about career insurance, um, a lot of people who work inside companies get into what I will call bad habits of um, really being very siloed. And in some cases, this is just a pressure inside your company that, you know, or a habit that you only talk to people in your department or you only talk to people in your office or something like that. But something that's very valuable uh, to you over the long term is building connections within and throughout the organization. So if you can make an effort to do things like uh, serve on or chair interdepartmental committees so that you can be meeting lots of people throughout the organization. Or if you can create your own version of this where you just invite somebody in a different department to coffee each week, that's really valuable because it means you're going to be more networked, you're going to be more plugged in, you're going to know about developments, you're going to know how to get things done. And you know, if, if God forbid there's a problem with your supervisor or, you know, there's sort of a shakeup inside the company, you have more insulation from all of that because you have other people inside the company that are rooting for you and that know you personally and will want to try to help you. So, you know, maybe if there's, uh, if there's a consolidation, 
instead of having to leave the company and go find another job. Uh, and of course, you know, you want to be continuing to network outside your company as well. But it's a lot easier if there's somebody inside the company that you can turn to and they say, oh, well, if there's a problem in the digital marketing department, why don't you just come back and work with the, uh, the print marketing department? Oh, okay. And so you're, you're protected that way. Um, so that's a really helpful thing to, to cultivate. Um, I think it also is really valuable. Not a lot of people think about it this way, but the higher your status outside the company, the higher your status inside the company. Um, hmm. There's a real tendency, especially if you've worked at a place for a long time, for people to begin to take you for granted. And if you do things that get other people outside the company talking about who you are, your name gets mentioned, maybe because you're, you've taken on a leadership role in a professional association, for instance. Um, when, when your boss, when the people around you start, start hearing your name in outside contexts, it makes them think more and appreciate more. Oh, maybe we have something really good on our hands here. We ought to, we ought to make sure that we're treating her well. Dory, where can people find out more about you and your work and get their hands on both of your books? Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate it. Probably the best place that people can can go is my website, which is doryclark.com. Um, I actually have a free 42-page standout workbook that is uh, adapted from the book and walks people step-by-step through how they can develop their own breakthrough ideas and build a following around them. And folks can get that for free at my website. It's doryclark.com, which is D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. Uh, my books are Reinventing You and Stand Out. Um, you can get them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or uh, a a lot of uh, smart real world bookstores. And on my website also, there's about 400 free articles that people can dive into there. Fantastic. Well, Dory Clark, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Jesse, thanks so much. All right, Engagers, the book again is Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. And we'll provide a link to doryclark.com as well as to her book and social media on our show notes for this episode, which you'll find at engagingleader.com. You know, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed and learned from Dory's book. I was afraid it would just be a lightweight book on self-promotion. But as you've hopefully picked up from this interview, it's actually about becoming an authority in a given field in order to make an impact with an idea or message that's accessible and actionable. As she puts it, to change the world for the better while giving you the ultimate job insurance. And before I read the book, I checked out Dory on the internet and discovered that, well, she really is a thought leader on how to be a thought leader. The book provides a clear framework on how to come up with a distinctive idea and build a following around it. It's filled with fascinating stories and Dory's personal interviews with some of the world's top thought leaders like Tom Peters and David Allen and Seth Godin. And she's very generous with sharing what she knows. She provides plenty of specific action steps and examples of how they've worked for other people. I learned a lot and I came away with plenty of action steps that I plan to try out. And I think you guys will will, uh, get a lot out of the book too. I think it's a a true manual on how to be a thought leader in your company or your community or perhaps even become the world's leading authority on your topic. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, 
James Marler, our sound engineer. Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor. Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer. J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern. Rick Terrence, our announcer. And Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 